When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Right on. You guys can be seated. Morning. Oh, that is loud. Uh, welcome. My name is Chris. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, uh, I'm a pastor here at King's Cross, and it's just good to be with you guys this morning. I uh, want to wish every single one of you uh, a very happy Valentine's Day. Uh, want to wish Wolf a happy 50th birthday. Woo! <laughs> It's a great name, right? Wolf. <laughs> Pastors are supposed to protect their flocks from wolves, but we'll gladly let this wolf <laughs> in. Uh, this is a day that we've been anticipating for quite some time now, like when the school district uh, closed all the buildings due to outside organizations because of this pandemic. We have not been able to meet weekly. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we uh, kind of was able to finagle our way into the Hatter's backyard and meet every other week there. Uh, but we still have not been able to meet weekly as a church family until now. And so this is a big deal. 
All right? And so I just wanted to give a big thank you to the Hatter family. They're not here uh, today. They're, they're out, uh, uh, I think, in Palm Springs this morning uh, to Foothills Church, uh, which has just generously opened up their doors to let us stay here. Um, some of you guys, uh, actually probably most of you guys don't, don't know that when, when the pandemic first started, uh, the pastor of Foothills reached out to me and said, like, hey, we know you guys are meeting into school, and the schools are closed down, and so uh, do, do you maybe, you know, want to meet? Uh, in our building, but like before we get there, like they have a 10 a.m. service. So he's like, you guys can maybe come in at like 8 a.m. and just at least have a space to, to play. And I was like, dude, we're not going to do that, right? 8 a.m. And I mean, but at the time too, I also thought like, dude, this is only going to last for like a couple months, right? That's what they told us. And so uh, we're like, why would we do that for a couple months just to move? I don't know. I just didn't want to do this back and forth thing. Uh, and so here we are several months later. And I was like, hey, remember that offer? Uh, how about... Sunday afternoon, and one of the things that I loved about our church family is when we, we started talking to you guys, uh, saying like, hey, what, how do you guys feel about moving to a Sunday afternoon? The overwhelming response, if it wasn't like, that's actually better for me, like most of you said like, hey, you know what, that's, that's, that's a different time to do church, but whatever it is that we got to do to be able to meet together as a church family like we're in. We'll rearrange our schedules, you know, we'll change nap time, whatever it is we got to do. And so, man, tip my hat to you guys. You guys are awesome. And I'm just glad that we can be together week after week uh, to celebrate uh, the gospel together. Uh, Since we're in this new space, we're going to celebrate together afterwards with food and fellowship and things like that. I want to invite you guys to, to, to take a walk around, see uh, what these spaces are going to look like. As soon as we have more volunteers for our nursery and for kids' church, uh, we're going to be utilizing some of these classrooms uh, along the, the, the corridor here. And so I want to invite you guys to check that out. Uh, and if any of you uh, need to use the restroom, um, of course, you went before the sermon, right? Because you're good. Christians, but in case you got to go again, uh, the, the, the restroom is like at the end of the aisle uh, uh, or the, the hallway, and then you hang a left. There's a sign down there, and uh, yeah, so uh, let's, let's open God's Word, but first let me pray for our time together, all right? Uh, Father, we thank you so much, again, Lord, just for providing this, this place to us. We thank you more than anything for the shared salvation that we have in our Lord Jesus. Jesus, we we just surrender uh, our time in this place, our hearts, our minds, our souls to you. Holy Spirit, would you just would you just align our hearts to be formed by the word? to be engaged in worship, that by the end of our time together as a church family tonight, we might look more and more like Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. So as a way to sort of break in our new space, I I wanted to take a break from our series just for this Sunday uh, on 1 Peter and kick our time off here with sort of like a housewarming sermon right? It's a housewarming sermon. It's an opportune time. Uh, now that we've, we're moving, we've moved into this space, this is a, a good time, an opportune time to revisit what it means to be a church. 
We've gathered in a school, we've gathered, gathered in living rooms and in backyards, outdoors, indoors. Now we're here in, in this space in the multi-purpose room at Foothills. And so if we're not self-reflective, we might risk having like this identity crisis, right? Who are we? What are we doing? And so I want to ask you guys a question this morning, like what comes to mind when you think about the church? What comes to mind when you think about church? I think for a lot of us, what comes to mind is what we want it to be, right? What comes to mind is, you know, like, oh, yeah, my church, it has this going on, but it'd be cool if we had this other thing going on. It'd be awesome if we had that thing going on. Like, we, we, we tend to think of what we want it to be. But I think a better question would be to ask, what does, what does Jesus want the church to be? What does he want his church to be? What does he desire for his church? In his heart, what does Christ desire for his people, for the church throughout all time? Uh, what does he desire for his church today? What does he desire for us as a local church? What does he desire for King's Cross Church? And the answer, one of the places we find an answer to this question is in John 17. John 17 is a, a transcription of the longest recorded prayer that Jesus ever uttered. Uh, theologians throughout history have called this his high priestly prayer. It's the longest recorded prayer we have from Jesus. Uh, you could spend days pouring over it. Days pouring over this, this prayer that takes up the bulk of John 17. There's actually a book uh, uh, up on a shelf in my, my uh, home office, in my library. Uh, there's a book that is dedicated to this prayer, written by this 19th century Irish pastor, and it's 500 pages thick. You know what he says about this prayer in that book? I don't know, because I've never read it. But... I say that, and I mention that just to say, like, you cannot exhaust this prayer. You can write pages and chapters on it. You can fill books with the contents of this prayer. And so there's much that we could say about John 17, but, but this, I, I wanted to say this morning, this afternoon, <laughs> uh, we're going to do just a, a brief overview of it. And what we'll see is that in this prayer, uh, it's just brimming with Jesus' heart for the church. It's brimming with his concern for his church and his desire for us. And so my goal, I think our goal this morning, is not that we would just hear and understand his prayer, this prayer better, but that we would learn to make his prayer our own. And so King's Cross, like, I, I want us to be a church that no matter where we are, where or when we meet, no matter what it is that we're going through, that we're shaped by the word of God and by prayer. And so with that, let's look at the first verse, uh, first couple verses of John 17. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that you have given him. So just to set the scene here, what's happening is that Jesus is at the close of what's called the farewell discourse. 
It's, uh, it's one of his last group, his last teachings that he gave his disciples uh, before he died. Right after the Last Supper, you know, the famous Last Supper uh, where Jesus broke bread and drank wine with his disciples, told them about what was about to happen to him, right? And where he calls out his betrayer, uh, Judas Iscariot. Uh, uh, Jesus at that moment, uh, in, in John chap- beginning in John chapter 14, he just starts unpacking just the significance of his life and his death and resurrection, just the, the, the gospel. He starts unpacking the gospel to them. And on the close of that discourse, on the close of that uh, teaching with them, he starts to pray this prayer in John 17. He says, the hour has come. Father, glorify your son. And Jesus was praying this because he knew he was approaching the end of his life. He was about to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, and ultimately dragged to the cross. And he's Jesus, so he knows what's in store. He knows this is about to happen. And even though he knows like a resurrection is on the other side of that, that he would rise from the grave in triumphant victory, even though he knew that that was also around the corner, he still knows that he's going to have to go through living hell to get there. He knows he's going to have to stare evil straight in the face to walk through the shadows and experience the most brutal death in all of history in order to get there. And it's at that moment, it's in this moment, knowing what's about to happen to him, this whole reason that he came, the mission he was sent for, to suffer for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, or as he says in verse 2, that he is the key to eternal life for uh, those the Father has given to him, for the elect. This was his mission to save undeserving sinners like me and like you. He's about to go to the cross and knowing that the cross is before him and that suffering death is right around the corner for him, he sits down with his disciples and he begins to utter this prayer. And what does Jesus do? He prays for his friends. He prays for his disciples. He prays for the church. Eventually, as the prayer goes on, we find that he prays for you and for me. He prays not only for his disciples in front of him, but he says he prays for all of those who are going to believe due to their testimony. He prays for us in his most trying hour, in the last moments of his life, Before he was about to get betrayed and arrested, Jesus prays for his church. And what does he pray for? First, he prays for our nearness to God. Our nearness to God. And I'm not talking like physical nearness, like, like, uh, you know, not socially distanced nearness or sitting right next to somebody nearness. Like we're talking like an, an intimacy here an intimate nearness to God. We see this beginning in verse 3 where he says, 
in his prayer, he says, Father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. You see, Jesus in these verses, he's praying to God the Father. He's saying, look, God, Lord, I, I came to teach them, to have them grow in the knowledge of the gospel and to draw near to your presence in me. He's, he's praying about that. You see, knowing God, knowing him, trusting him, following him. That is how we draw near to him. When he uses the word know there in verse 3 and onward, it's an intimate word. It's an intimate word. It's this Greek word, gnosko, which means uh, it's more like this process of getting to know someone. It's it's growing in intimate knowledge. It's, It's growing to have what we might call perfect knowledge. And here's what's fascinating. This knowledge is how Jesus describes eternal life. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. That they may know you. That's how Jesus describes eternal life in this prayer. By knowing God. You see, eternal life is less about a quantity of time. It's, it's, not, it's not not that. But it's less about a quantity of time and more about just this quality of existence. Where you're near to God. You exist in his presence, in his unadulterated presence. It's this life that we were made for the one that we all yearn for. It goes beyond this life. It goes beyond death. You see, to know him as a son or daughter of God, that is eternal life. To belong to him, to be near to him, not physically near, but relationally near, like your family. It's about being adopted into God's family and no longer alienated from him. You see, you can be born into a family and find yourself in this place where you're you're not actually enjoying nearness with those that you're related to. Some of us have families like that, right? One of the reasons that the holidays are are, are hard is because we find ourselves around uh, family members uh, that um, maybe we're estranged from. Or because we're missing the family members who, who, who no longer wants to be there. You can be born into a biological family and not enjoy nearness. But that's not the kind of adoption that the Lord has for us. When you're adopted into his family, man, you grow in that nearness. You grow in getting to know him. 
having perfect knowledge of who he is and what it means to, to be with him in Christ. That's the kind of intimacy, the kind of nearness that Jesus is praying for here. And so I want to pose this question for us this, this morning. Are we seeking this intimacy? Are we seeking this nearness in prayer? Are we marked by the presence of God? One of the things that marks a Christian and that marks a church is that you're marked by God's presence. His presence, his power, his nearness is among you. Look, regardless of what our space that we're meeting in looks like, God's people dwells. We dwell in his presence. Do you live with that awareness? I think one of the reasons that we, we might struggle with this is because we, we sort of get caught up in the, the busyness of life and even the busyness of ministry, right? We find ourselves being being so uh, just consumed by what it, what it is that's on our schedule, what it is that we need to do, even the stuff that we do for the Lord, right? We can get so lost in, in, in what it is that we, we think we should be doing that we start to, to lose sight of our actual relationship with the Lord, where we start to exchange a... Uh, like a, an intimate relationship with this self-driven religion. Just even the busyness, like hustle bustle of our normal lives gets in the way of this too. I was reading in this book last year that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,600 times a day. And what would, it, what would our lives look like if our minds went to God's presence as often as we touch our phones? 2,600 times a day. The reformers had this, this concept that they, they talked about um, a lot, quorum Deo, which means uh, before the face of God. And is that they, they endeavored in, in all of who they were and the ways that they lived their lives to live life before the face of God. And they had that phrase, quorum Deo. They like wrote it on everything. And the reason it became this uh, repeating motto of theirs is because it changes a lot of things when you seek to live before the face of God. Um, I don't think I have a slide for this, but um, in, this, in this book I read last year, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, by John Mark Comer, he wrote, we cannot do any authentic ministry without nearness in Jesus. We cannot authentically live for the glory of God and the good of others without nearness in Jesus. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? We do that through prayer, through what Jesus is doing here. You see, Jesus' example teaches us that prayer is about relationship. It's not about performing a duty. It's about spending time with his father. Like if a relationship is going to deepen and grow, then, it, then you need to spend time together, right? 
You need to get better acquainted with the person that you're wanting to grow in the relationship with. And prayer creates an environment where that nearness can happen, where you can begin to understand God's heart. You see, in the same way that you can't just create intimacy with somebody, like you can't just create intimacy with your spouse or your friend or your kids, like you can't just just create it in a moment, right? In the same way that you can't do that, you can't also can't create intimacy with God. You got to make room for it. You got to spend time with him. And then intimacy will grow. Nearness will happen. You see, what you give your attention to is the person that you become. The mind is sort of like the portal to the soul. And whatever you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of of who you are. In the end, our lives are going to be no more than just the total of what it is that we give our attention to. And as followers of Jesus, what we do, our ministry flows from nearness with God. The world tells us, no, you got to prove yourself, right? Prove yourself. Prove yourself by your degrees, by your resume. Prove yourself with your cars or with your house, by what's filling up your calendar. Prove yourself by the number of followers you have on social media. But for those who are in Christ, we can say, no, I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to prove myself. I don't need to prove my worth because my sense of worth, my sense of value, my my identity, my being is found in Christ who lived, died, and rose from the dead for me. You see, this, this nearness with God, our relationship with him, we need to grow in that because it is the source of the power that we have as a church. It is the means of our transformation. It is the grounds for why we exist and the goal for what we're doing. To be near to God, to grow nearer to him, and to help others do the same. Another thing we see Jesus pray for, number two, is that they would have unity with one another. Unity with one another. We see this in uh, beginning in verse 9. When Jesus says, I am praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He's talking about his disciples there with him. And in verse 10, he says, all mine are yours, and yours, Father, are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You see, the church, Jesus' desires for his church, his prayer for his church is that we would be one. Just as he read right there, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is saying, look, that that even as the Father and the Son have a unity with each other within the Trinity, like like Jesus is saying, may, may, may the church have that kind of unity. May the church have that kind of oneness. Church is more than like the plural word for Christians. It's more than, than a gathering of multiple people. It's, it's about this oneness that we have with one another. 
This oneness fleshes itself out in a few ways that we see in Jesus' prayer. First, it's this relational unity. Relational unity. When he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Make them one as we are one. That tells us that Jesus wants to not only restore our relationship with God, but he wants to restore our relationship with one another. He wants the kind of unity in the church that's, that's shaped by the Trinity. And here's what I mean by that. Like, when our triune God created mankind, he said, let us make mankind in our image. In other words, mankind as a whole is meant to reflect the unity and the oneness of the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so when sin entered the world, it fractured not only our relationship with with God, but also with each other. So that at any given moment, we're going to naturally choose to betray God or just betray one another. And so the cross of Jesus not only reconciles us back to God, but also to each other. So the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave to adopt us into God's family, that gospel gives us new hearts and new minds, but it also creates a new family this relational unity that we have. Another kind of unity Jesus refers to is spiritual unity. Spiritual unity. The idea is that we have the Holy Spirit making a home in us together, drawing us together. In this room alone, we have people of all kinds of different stripes, right? We're different ages, different generations, different vocations, different social upbringings, different ethnicities, different wirings, skills, gifts, different religious backgrounds. We're all distinct from each other, for sure, but if you are a follower of Jesus, then we also have this this unbreakable unity that comes from being brothers and sisters in God's family. You see, although every follower of Jesus has a personal relationship with God, that relationship is not isolated, all right? Like, the cross and resurrection of Jesus restores us to a relationship with God, but also adopts us into God's family. And so church isn't just some place that we attend, but it's a people that we belong to. It becomes this, this people we belong to. And look, this is the most beautiful type of community that there is because it's the kind of community that we all long for because it's the kind of community that we were made for. Where Jesus is our center and his message is the foundation on which we stand. And so look, as a church... As we're listening to Jesus' prayer and his desire for his church, as a church family, man, let's long for that unity. Let's pray for that unity. We work for it. And look, it's going to be hard work. It might require some hard conversations, but man, it's always going to be worth it. Always going to be worth it. There's also theological unity. Theological unity. When Jesus is praying, he says to God the Father, Lord, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. In other words, Lord, keep them grounded in all that you have revealed about yourself. That's what they meant when they would use that phrase, being kept in God's name. 
You see, we believe in the historic Jesus that is revealed in the scriptures, all that it says about his life, his death, his burial, and resurrection. We believe all of it. And according to Jesus, true unity is not about having shared interests, but about having a shared identity in him. That's why we're committed to growing in biblical literacy this year. Many of you know that our church, uh, at the beginning of the year, we, we announced that we're going through this Bible reading plan together. And we've, all, we've got this app where, where people are, are posting comments and questions and things like that. Our home group is, uh, is talking about the reading plan as we go along. Like we, we care about that. We want you to grow in biblical literacy. In other words, getting to know your Bible better and and. and understanding it more. And we want that because the truth of who God is, it matters. It matters. And look, there's going to be like certain secondary issues, even theologically, uh, that we might uh, have disagreements on. But remember that relational unity that we started with, right? Like in spite of some of those differences, we need to pursue one another. We need to pursue one another. Look, it's not always going to be easy, but we are to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. Man, it's crazy to me how many pastors I talk to that have like where their churches over this last year, um, despite the shared salvation that that the different church members have in, in Christ and in the gospel, like, how many people have been leaving churches because of positions on mass and politics and race and things like that? Like, man, when we pursue unity in the spirit and the bond of peace, those things should become trivial to us in light of the gospel that unifies us. That means we pursue unity not just when it's convenient or most comfortable, but that we press in the community even when it requires sacrifice, even when it requires hard conversations, even when it requires a little bit of dying to yourself. There's another kind of unity that we see in Jesus' prayer. It's what we might call missional unity. Missional unity. He says, uh, he, he prays that, he says, Lord, would you send them into the world? It's not just you being united in mission, but this unity in, 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 in just, that just helps God's mission gain traction, right? Like he says, by being one, uh, by being one the world may know that they belong to, to, to the Lord. And so in other words, like by our oneness with one another, by our unity with one another, um, the world will know that we follow the God of the Bible, the God who reconciles sinners to himself and to each other. You see, we're not supposed to escape the world or, or, or we're not supposed to conform to it either. But by being one, the world may know something about the God who saved us. 
There's a, there's a, uh, this like movement right now that we see of uh, a bunch of people, um, particularly like Christians uh, and conservatives who are like leaving the state, right? They're like, oh, we hate Gavin Newsom and we're gonna leave, we're gonna move to, to, to the free land, right? Because we don't, we, we, don't, we don't like our rights are being taken away and this and that and, and, and the other. Um, and so there's like this exodus of, of people leaving California to that. When I was talking uh, to a friend of mine, uh, Pastor Alan Frau, he pastors a church up in Brea, and he was talking about how, um, man, when, when you look throughout church history, when things got hard for people, when things got hard for people, when their rights were started to get um, taken away, when it became, started to become uncomfortable or inconvenient to live somewhere, that's actually historically when the church pressed in more. That's actually when the church would say, no, we're not going to leave like everyone else is. We're actually going to stay and care for the people around us. He wrote about this in this uh, blog post that he posted on Facebook, and he's got this, this little quote that I, I love. He said, there is no God-forsaken place on the planet unless God's people have forsaken it. I love that, right? Some people are calling California a God-forsaken place. It's not a God-forsaken place until God's people have forsaken it. But as long as there's Christians here in California, as long as there's churches here in Orange County, believers united in mission to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples, as long as there are faithful Christians in a place, God is not forsaken a place. <clears throat> How many of you guys know of... Uh, guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, he's also known as the Prince of Preachers. He was a pastor in the late 1800s, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and he pastored a church called Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And some of the cultural background of uh, where he was doing ministry in London is that uh, when the Industrial Revolution came in the late 1700s, by 1850, the effects of that revolution uh, pervaded all throughout London. And so uh, some of the effects meant that there were uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of new uh, companies and factories and things like that. But the city had gotten overcrowded. Because people were hearing about, like, oh, there's this new, there's new companies, there's new factories, there's new work in this area of town, and so a ton of people moved to the city. And London was in meltdown mode because uh, the the homelessness population was on the rise, which meant that the crime population, uh, that crime was up, and that fatherlessness was up, and that the number of orphans was increasing. And there were needs everywhere, and none of them were being met. When people saw the city falling apart, 
man, like a ton of people decided to leave. A lot of churches decided to leave. If you actually, if you actually go uh, to England right now, you'll see a ton of beautiful churches out in the countryside, right? And you'll be like, man, how did so many churches get into these places where there's like not a lot of people? It's because everyone left London. All these churches left London. They're like, we don't want to stay here except Metropolitan Tabernacle. Spurgeon led the charge, and he said, look, we're going to stay because we see an opportunity for the gospel. Our city's falling apart. There's unsaved people everywhere. There's widows. There's orphans. And so as long as there's that going on, like, we will not forsake this place because they were united as a church on their mission together. You see, understanding that we are made for mission means that we're intentional about how we spend our time as a church. It means that we're intentional with the relationships that we develop, that we develop the people that we, we hang around. Jesus also talks about uh, being united in our, our mission to the world, being empowered in our mission to the world. We read about this in verse 22 to 24. He says in his prayer, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, speaking of his disciples, that they may be one even as we are one. Again, that unity he's talking about. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. You see, right there in verse 24, Jesus is praying for those the Father has given him. Who's he talking about? That's the, he's talking about the church throughout all the ages. All who would come to know Jesus, love him and follow him and worship him as God. He's praying for the church in his day to multiply, that more and more people will get to experience the glory and the hope that's found in him. You see, there are things that we do all the time that will keep us from being aligned with his mission, that will keep this vision from becoming visible in our church. Like when we start to lose track or lose sight, rather, of the mission that God has called us to in following Christ and making disciples, we can find ourselves distracted from that mission. Sometimes when we pull back, right? When we pull back, that means we're not drawing near to God, we're not praying, we're not repenting, we're not asking for help when we fall into sin for to our, when talking to our brothers and sisters. We're not getting to know others. We're not having hard conversations. If you want all that God desires for you, though, you need to turn to him. You need to draw near to him. Look, maybe you've been away for a while, right? Maybe you've been away from church or been away from the church community for a while. Maybe you feel like you've been away from God's presence for a while. And this is an opportunity to press into community to turn back to him. I love that part in, in Revelation uh, chapter two when Jesus is writing his letter to a bunch of different churches. And he says to the church in Ephesus, he's like, you know, like you guys got a good thing going on, but he's like, but I regret this one thing. You've forsaken your first love. 
you've forgotten your first love. You're doing all these things. You even look pretty on the outside. But man, you're not even near to me relationally. You've drawn back. Another way way that we get sort of distracted from the mission is where um, we start to tear apart from one another. This is when division starts to creep in in the church. You know who loves division? The enemy does. Satan does. Look, man, division is hot right now. Like, it is culturally hot to cancel somebody, right? To, to turn away from them. To say, you're not good enough to be with us over here. Jesus, he loves his church. He loves his church. He loves all the saints in his church. And so we should too. I was reminded of the, of his, of the words of the apostle in 1 John 3.16 when he said, by this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So rather than tear apart at each other, we should press in together. Another way that we lose sight of the mission is just simply by disengaging. Disengaging. But you see, when we disengage from community, when we disengage from the mission, we start to separate ourselves from the whole just purpose that God made us and saved us for, to be part of his kingdom, to be citizens of his kingdom, to be ambassadors of the gospel. And so we want to move forward together on mission so that as many people as possible will come to know God, love him, and worship him. We want to see people come to saving faith. Like, that's why King's Cross Church exists. We want to see more and more people come to saving faith. And then we want to see more and more of you grow in that faith. Jesus serves as our primary example of a life on mission. He says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see, simply, a life on mission is just a life that is sent. Do you recognize, acknowledge, give credence to the fact that as a follower of Jesus, you are sent. Jesus prayed this. He says, Father, just as you send me into the world, now I send them. We are sent by Jesus to push back the darkness and by his spirit to usher in the kingdom of light. You see, if you want a framework for life on mission, you just look at the incarnation and the life of Jesus himself. Jesus is God who came down to become man. He set aside what was rightfully his. He set aside his privilege. And he came humbly to serve us, to pursue us, to know us in the truest and deepest sense of that 
word. He entered into our world. He loved people, spent time with them, and shared his life with them. When you look at the life of Jesus, we see his hand opened to outcasts. We see his grace offered to prostitutes, adulterers, and tax collectors. We see Jesus, the servant king, move with compassion because he sees that those around him are like sheep without a shepherd. That's Matthew 9.36. And he says he came to seek and save that which is lost. You see, a church that is united on its mission is a church that sees that people and culture are not enemies of the church, but broken treasures that God is restoring through the transforming power of the gospel. So how do we do this then? Maybe you find yourself inspired galvanize, to draw near to God, to draw into community, and to live on mission. But then how do we do that? Because we know that when we try at these things, like we fall and fail, we fall short every single time. We'll move forward and then we'll fall back a couple steps. What we see here in this prayer is that we'll still move forward if we keep Christ Central, we'll still hold on to the gospel together. We'll give generously to reach others. We'll give our lives for the good of others. We do that when we're empowered by the Spirit of God. And this is our last point. We see in part of Jesus' desire for his church is that we would be dependent on prayer that we would be dependent on prayer. Jesus didn't call us to look inward for the power to live out his desires for us. Like John 17 is not a rally cry, right? It's not a rally cry to his disciples up in that room. No, it's a desperate prayer. This vision that he has for his church about their nearness to God, their oneness with one another, the way that they multiply making disciples, this vision is accomplished by nothing other than the power of God. That's why Jesus prays. He prays and he wants us to pray like, God, we need you. We need you. We need you to heal our hearts. We need you to heal our land. We need you to unify us. We need you to provide for us. We need you to send us out. You might agree with every single point that we've gone over, right? Like as I'm walking through each of those points, talking about nearness to God, being one in community, uh, living a life on mission, making disciples, you might be listening to that and be like, oh yeah, like totally yes and amen. I'm, I'm with all that, right? Like I get all that. But do your prayers show that? Are you praying like it? Do you just cognitively, like, do you just agree with those points with your mind, or are you actually engaged in them with your heart? Do you pray like it? Why does the Son of God pray, right? You ever thought about that? Why does Jesus, God the Son, why does he pray? It's because God loves to work through the prayers of his people. God could grow trees out of nothing, but the normative way he does it is through seed, water, and sunlight. That doesn't make 
That doesn't make photosynthesis any less a miracle. It doesn't make it any less brilliant, any less miraculous, any less a work of our sovereign God. And in the same way, God can multiply churches and plant churches out of nowhere. But the normative way is through the word preached and the church unified and the church engaged on mission and the church's prayers lifted. We see in scripture, and it's been confirmed throughout history, that the most insane works of revival have taken place throughout history, that they all started with just a movement of missional prayer. And so, man, let's pray that way. Let's pray for our intimacy with God, that we might grow in that. Let's pray about our unity with one another. Let's pray for our mission. If you want to boil it down, the church exists for one reason, and that's just to make the name of Jesus great. That's what Jesus prayed for. He says, Father, glorify me. Not because he's in like, has this huge ego, but because he's Jesus, the only true source of hope. If the Father didn't glorify Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection, if the Father didn't answer that prayer when Jesus said, glorify me, then there'd be no hope for any of us. And so making the name of Jesus great, that's what we care about. That's what we pray for. Let's be a church like that. A church that prays like Jesus for nearness to God, unity among ourselves, and fruitfulness in our mission. Through those prayers, we have the privilege of participating in God's sovereign work of saving sinners. And so let's join him in this great mission and by his great power and pray together. Amen. Father, would you, would you make us a people and a church that just grows in our intimacy with you, that is more tightly tethered in unity with one another and more hopefully engaged with expectant faith in this great mission that you've called us to, that more and more people might come to know you and love you and worship you as God. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.